bounce down and it's wrong. We're live, Phil. Phil! <laughs> Phil, wrong you! Phil. It's I haven't me. seen you. It's been, I've been quarantined. You know, Phil, I cannot tell you how much I miss your movie nights. Your, your movie nights are so epic and it's, it's, the world is not the same. All right. I don't see any, nobody's with us yet. So I have to make sure that we're public. This is this. All right. I have to make sure that the feed is public because this always makes me crazy yesterday. Nobody being there. You know what? All right. I'm making it public now. It wasn't public. You know what? I think I might, <laughs> I don't know if it's going to go out to everybody. So I might have to restart. Restart. Do what you need to do. It, but it's the the thing isn't telling me how to make this go public. On um, why isn't this giving me a thing? Um, what if everyone's seeing this right now? There's one person seeing this right now. <laughs> that could be the audience. I'm used to that. Um. So. <laughs> so yeah, people are people are finding us now. I don't know what it is. All right, we're not going to talk about tech stuff, Phil. So, so Phil, I know you through many facets. I, everybody loves Raymond was where I first came to know you, but I got to know you at your movie nights. Can you, before we get into all your work stuff, your movie nights are epic and they are renowned. How did that start? How, how did movie nights start? Uh, when I was 15 years old. Yeah. I'm serious. I, yeah. There, there was no way to watch a movie in your house. Uh, uncut, uninterrupted, uncensored. Yeah. Until HBO came along. Right. And so I'm 15, and here comes R-rated movies. Every Saturday night was a new R-rated movie at 10 o'clock, and I would call my other junior high friend idiots to come over. Say, I would say, come over. Maybe we'll see something. <laughs> and we would order pizza and watch an uncut, uncensored movie. So even then, pizza was part of the deal? Always. Always. Two reasons. One, who doesn't like pizza? Two, cheap and easy. Right. Right? Right, yeah. You don't even need a plate. <laughs> <laughs> Did you have like one pizza place that you used to call? Yeah. yeah. New City Pizza. All right. And so, so the, and, and then I went to, uh, uh, that sustained me through high school. Right. You know? Then, then college, and I ran the program board films every weekend. That meant that I was a kid, but I was doing business with the movie companies, getting movies to show on campus to the student body. And wow. I was choosing the movies. Wow. So I was running movie night. I even was, you know, in charge of the concessions. Right. Right? Right. And, uh, and then after college, now comes uh, VCRs. And now you can actually pick the movie you want, and it's in your house. And I had a little 19-inch color TV yeah. that was stolen twice out of my apartment. <laughs> and then, and then uh, got a job, moved to Hollywood. Uh, the TV got a little bigger. The, the movies were now on Laserdisc. <laughs> then they went to DVDs, then Blu-rays, and now you see what we have. Okay, we have to talk about your theater. Mike Rowe just said on his 32-inch TV. <laughs> he was there. Mike yeah, he remembers. He says your apartment on Beachwood. He's talking about exactly right. And we would watch uh, VHS tapes and, of course, order pizza. And, uh, so, where were you ordering from when you were on Beachwood? Uh, Mike might know. Mike, 
Mike, tell us where, where the pizza was coming from. I think Rafalos was a regular. I think we, we started to change it up just for variety. Right? <laughs> yeah. It was Damiano's on Fairfax, I think. I once got very, they're not there anymore, I don't think. I once got very mad at them because they, they gave me, they didn't, they didn't uh, get the order right. And they delivered too few pizzas. And when I said, what are you doing? I got a house full of people. I gave uh, three pizzas. What, what's... And they hung up on me. So oh you don't God. see them anymore. <laughs> well, now, so tell us about your, first of all, tell us about your theater and how you created it. Because your theater is arguably maybe the best theater in the world to watch a movie in. How did that happen? Uh, as we kept moving mm -hmm. and things became nicer and I became luckier, uh, I just felt that movie night should be this great thing, as great as I could make it, make it because I love it so much. You know, it starts with me wanting to have. Oh my God, we lost Phil. We lost you for a minute. Are you this there? My phone. Yeah, my, no, my phone rang and, and no, it went have, on my iPad. You have to put it on Do Not Disturb. Do you know how to do that? Hang on. You go to uh, settings and then you, there's a Do Not Disturb and you click it on and then your phone won't, won't uh, got it. interrupt. It's done. Okay. There you go. Okay, so. so as, I got, as I got luckier. Right. Got bigger. And then I, uh, and the pizza got better. The pizza got better. Better. Everything got better. And to me, success is only good if you can share it, like a like a pizza. It's like if a, you if you sit alone and eat a whole pizza, you're gonna be sick and you're not happy. <laughs> you gotta share everything. It's only so, good if you can share. So how did you get? I I know who built your. Theater. How did you get the guys from Abbey Road to, to build your theater? Well, the guys from Abbey Road only did the, the front speakers. Those are the, those two big speakers in the front there. I mean, wow. I want people to understand that this is years and years and years of work and, and good fortune and good luck. And, and it's, it's built with other people, right? I didn't do this myself. I'm not it took years and years to get this and and the whole impetus for being so great is that it, i wanted to have a place where people would want to come so that i could be with people right it's not like you have your 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 luxury and your wealth and you sit there with it but you share it with everyone you share it you share it all that's the point of life so we got this new house uh 14 years ago and uh -huh. i thought now I can really design movie night around. In fact, I don't think I would have bought the house if I didn't see a room with potential. <laughs> By the way, Mike says it was 50 years ago. He can't remember where the pizza was from. <laughs> so a room, a room with potential to be a theater, you mean? This was a plain white room. It was a living room. And I thought, what if we dug down into the earth and oh. made, made tri-level seating that's why it is the way it is and oh wow made even the front comfy so that if we had more people the the carpet would have padding that thick under it and and then shag onto so it's actually comfortable to lie on the floor with pillows and watch. and a giant screen would come down from the ceiling and we'd have great sound and i wanted if you're going to do it 
how do I get the best sound and picture? And I okay. researched, researched and I, I hired a company that does this, that does the home theaters. And I said, if you could make the best one, what would it be? And they said, well, you got to do this and this and that. And I did it. Sound, it is soundproof. It is a perfect, you could record music in that room. It is a perfectly dead, what they call dead sonically room. There's no echo. There's no, that's perfect. There's speakers built in around you. There's two subwoofers. There's gorgeous. I mean, you've been in there. If, I've been when in there. there's an action sequence, the room shakes. Oh, yeah, the whole thing vibrates from the bottom. But my favorite part about your movie night, my favorite moment of movie night is when you lower the shades and it is yes. pitch black. I have never been in a place that is true pitch black like that. Well, that's part of getting the best picture is you must have total blackness, right? right. But and movie theaters don't. So it's talking about the, uh, no, they don't. Maybe right. for safety reasons, other reasons, but the, the blacker the room, the better the picture. Anyway, the, the technology has advanced to the point now where, you know, if you had a dedicated screening room in your house and you wanted first run movies, you had to have a 35 millimeter projector upstairs and uh -huh. you had to have according to the union rules of the projectionist union okay you had to hire a person and that person had to have a dedicated bathroom just for that person. that was the union rule wow because a lot of muckety muck fancy people didn't want the projectionist going to the bath in their house wow right? so yeah they made a union rule okay okay so i never I never had 35 millimeter, I came later. So what do movie theaters have now? They have something called the digital cinema package, which is a hard drive. Right. It's about that I big. In your hard drive, yeah. Well, Vicky, not everybody gets to see it. <laughs> but that is something you slide into the, the, the uh, uh, I've never seen the room downstairs where the magic- All the basement, all the equipment. But it's the same exact equipment that movie theaters have. Wow. And I wrote letters before I even built the theater. I wrote letters to every studio in Hollywood. This is how it's done. Right. May I get on what's called the Bel Air circuit. The Bel Air circuit wow. is the list of people who are in the industry that have special permission for the movie studios to lend them a movie on opening day, sometimes earlier. We, we've, yes, I've been at your house and seen them earlier. And because now the movie night is somewhat known and right. they like to preview things to our guests because we have people there who might create a little buzz about Absolutely. it. So they know that. And sometimes, you know, we get the movies early, but the best part other than being with all of you and, and my friends is sometimes we get someone associated with the film and that's like a class afterwards. You know, I've been there when Lena Dunham, bef way before Girls, came with Tiny, was it Tiny Furniture? Is that what it was called? That's right. Yes. That's right. And Lena was there. Nobody, she had already started filming Girls, but nobody knew anything. Yes. So I've been there and, and, and um, Leon, when he came with, um, with Stanley Kubrick's, how's Leon? I think he's good. Okay, good. So I've seen- I just wrote there, yeah. I've seen thrilling people in your in your screenings. I don't know if you were there for Peter O'Toole. I was not there. My favorite year is my favorite movie of all time. I didn't. I wasn't there for Peter O'Toole. Well, I got to work with him, and <sighs> when we were we became friends, 
which is, I can't even believe that I say that, but it's true. And when he came to LA, I said, would you come to movie night? I'm like, I would love to. Said, which of your films can we show? And without hesitation, he said, if you show one of my films, I will not be coming. Wow. I saw Lawrence of Arabia in your place, the remaster. Yes. What did you show when Peter was there? Well, I said, so what can we, and before I finished asking, what could we, he said, Cary Grant. And I said, really, Cary Grant? And what, Cary Grant? He goes, before I finished, talk of the town. Wow. He wanted to see this very interesting movie with Cary Grant that was a kind of a 50s comedy until the woman in the film needs an abortion. I didn't know that movie. You gotta watch it. It's really, oh, really wow. good. So everybody, of course, they don't care what movie it is. Peter O'Toole's in my kitchen. Have oh a my God! I can't even imagine what that was like. It, it was. I mean, some people I didn't even tell who the guest was, and to just to watch them drop dead. Oh my God! Was it? Was he like a? Was he like a? Well, I mean, he's fancy, but I. Lainey Kazan was telling me stories about him. Was he was he a regular guy there? Was he Peter no, O'Toole? No. He was Peter O'Toole, right? He was wearing a white suit with a tie. And he didn't have an and did he did he smoke his cigarette his thing? No, he didn't smoke no. in the no. Oh right, okay. But by that time he couldn't smoke. He couldn't right. okay. smoke alive. Did he drink? No, he couldn't drink either. But <laughs> he but the most charming, oh wonderful, loving beautiful uh, people i mean and then after the movie he gives a, a a class in the movie oh my god here's why this movie is great here's when it came out here's when i saw it here's and and then you could ask him whatever you want wow before the movie you know i always have a little music thing yeah so i said to mr o'toole you know who beyonce is he said who <laughs> i said beyonce i want to show you beyonce <laughs> And I put on a concert with Beyonce, just one number, the better put a ring on it, number. And Peter O'Toole was like this. <laughs> ha, 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 like this, like, like he's, oh. like, like his world exploded. Oh, this I is what life is now, Mr. O'Toole. Oh my God, I love it. And you know, you've introduced me to a lot of great music. I believe I heard Liz you. You know, yeah. well, no, but you're really, yeah, but you're really great with finding things like uh, Janae, um, Janelle Monet. Janelle Monet, you turned me on to Lizzo. You yes, turned, I discovered it. and Lizzo, you turned me on to you. Oh, you, you find, and you find a lot of people. You find things quickly. I'm a big fan of talent. You are. You are a big. So, so let's talk about your talent because what I love about your talent is that we're going to talk about the fact that you started out as an actor and, and at Hofstra and stuff and how you met Monica. But and I how love, I failed. And, but, but failing was so important. And that's a part of the story that's so important because now you are using all of your skills. With Somebody Feeds Phil, you get to be everything I believe you probably aspired to be, right? You're on camera. Your fulfillment of a dream I told myself when I was five years old. Okay, so what was that dream when you were five? Maybe someday I'll make I'll, I'll be on stage and make people laugh. That's it. I okay, so it had nothing to do with food? No, 
I no. don't like food. <laughs> well, tell us why. Tell us about your mother's cooking, Phil. <laughs> Do I have to? We were having such a nice time. <laughs> By the way, um, condolences. Helen and Max are, I can't even imagine. You got Helen and Max in this season, though, right? Are they uh, in the my, season? My dad is in every show. Okay. He tells a joke in every episode, <laughs> and he's fantastic. And Monica is with him every show, because when oh. I was off filming and living my dream, she, the saint, don't tell her I said this, but she went to New York to be with them and help them. And, and, and my mom passed away in October from ALS. And so uh, we have her for one episode where she was well enough to come to the computer and Skype with us. I she was great. I saw a little clip. Is there something about her hair in it's it? It's in the trailer. It's in, in the, the trailer. trailer. Okay. So, so, um, oh God. Yeah. You, you, you made your parents stars and they are stars in their own right. They're, they I think they so made me a star. I think that they are the whole show. Uh, people tell me they're the favorite part. I'm like, why do I bother going anywhere? I could sit in the kitchen. <laughs> so your mom wasn't a great cook. So this whole food thing. No, I said on the first show on the I'll have what Phil's having in, in the credits. I said in our house, meat was a punishment. <laughs> our, the cuisine of our house was cheap. That was the cuisine. The vegetables. What kind of vegetables did we you didn't eat? have a lot of money? Yeah. And they both worked, so it just wasn't a priority. And I don't blame either of them. Uh, but that just wasn't, you know, they the education was the most important thing. So I hated everything. I hated the education part. I hated the not good food part. I hated everything. Show business is great, except for what, Phil? Show business. Yeah, except for business. I love every aspect of show business, except the business. Yeah, I love that. Okay, so, so, so you're five years old. You want to entertain people. Are you the class clown? I am, but I'm, 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 I'm a nervous class clown. In other words, <laughs> uh, school was very yeah. intimidating, regular school. But because? Hebrew school oh. was punishment on top of punishment. <laughs> it's bad enough you have to go to school and have homework on top of that. And then Hebrew school, Tuesdays, Thursdays, and Sundays? Oh, God. This is like, forget whatever Hebrew school is for. You've <laughs> already told me there is no God. <laughs> Okay, wait a minute. You, we're both watching Scheisel right now. Do you understand? Can you pick things up watching? Yeah, because those people were in my family. There's a branch of my family that is that. Right. Mine and they may be very uncomfortable. <laughs> they so were, any, any, any fanaticism, any ultra religious from any sect, okay, mm -hmm. uh, for me is trouble. I can't understand. I can't understand. I'm not prejudiced. I just don't understand. I I, 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 hear you. I get you. Okay, so you're you're the class clown. You go into Hebrew school. Yeah. You're yes. you, you start. I'm, a, I'm suspended from Hebrew school because I'm such a troublemaker. <laughs> I can't picture you being a troublemaker. Not only was a troublemaker. You know, in regular school, I would get picked on and pushed over, and I was last to be chosen. But in Hebrew school, I'm already an athlete. <laughs> Wow, I love it. So how did they so, so as braver, in other words, in Hebrew school because the stakes are very low, right? <laughs> so how about when you got to high school? What was that like? Well, then 
you know, I was still picked on and everything, but then I was very shrimpy and short and weak and skinny. And, and I didn't, I couldn't, no girl would talk to me. And then I got, I found that if I tried out for the school play and I could be funny in the school play, I mean, this is the ancient story. Then, then, oh, now a girl might like me. So there was that. So, okay. So you decide you're going to be an actor. Well, it was handed to me like, like I became a big star in high school, really like the, the paper, the, they went crazy. I thought, oh my, this is what I'm meant to do. I'm meant what, was, to what was your first leading role, Phil? Uh, there was a play that Neil Simon wrote for Sid Caesar and it was called Little Me. It was on Broadway in 1962, mm -hmm. but he played seven roles in the show and they gave me that wow. as my senior thing. Wow. Because I could do all the accents. I could, I could do, I could actually do it. I was 17. Yeah. And I was a big deal. And I got into NYU and I got into Hofstra and I went to Hofstra because I couldn't afford NYU. So, and, and I was a character actor. I was never a serious actor. I never wanted to be. If right. I had the guts, I would have been a stand-up comedian, but I didn't have the guts. I did tried it once. Did, when you I was ever, did, did you ever try? 19 years old, I went to a local huh? club in Rockland County on their amateur night, and it scared the hell out of me, mainly because the people wouldn't even be quiet in the bar. <laughs> so, listen, I'm saying, what kind of life is this? Not for me. So I uh, give props to every single stand-up comedian who's ever lived because they, they are the bravest. You know, if you meet uh, Woody Allen's uh, managers, I met them. Jack Rollins, I'm friends with yeah. his daughters, yeah. Okay, so Jack Rollins said the bravest person he ever saw was Woody Allen in the early 60s because he was only a writer. And then he had the guts to get up on stage in the Greenwich Village uh, clubs. Mm -hmm. And he was so nervous that he would wrap the microphone cord around himself while he was talking. <laughs> and you could barely hear him and he would like be strangling himself. <laughs> and he didn't get any laughs. With And I'm telling you, oh. this is trivial. The material, you can hear it. It's on an album called Woody Allen, The Stand-Up Years. And if Mike Rowe is out there listening, he'll vouch for me. This is the best stand-up material of all time. It's I am writing this down. The download this. Woody Allen, The Stand-Up Years. It's where all the comedy in his early films co come from. You can see it. You can uh, hear it. And it's, oh my God, there's never been a wittier, funnier set ever then the, and he didn't get laughs no because he was like he would talk he would talk like this you know like a little nebbish like you could barely hear him in the of course the people were drinking and smoking and then right who's this little jew on stage i'm not listening but <laughs> rollins and Jaffe were in the back right. they were listening and they were laughing and they saw the talent and they said the bravest thing they've ever seen from a human being is that this guy who was bombing every single night Bombed for two years straight wow. until it clicked. Wow. And well, I mean, it's Larry David, too. I mean, Larry David was a late night act and he never, the audience used yeah. to pull him off the stage at the improv. Yeah, I mean, it's crazy. Okay, so. So after school, right. I graduate and I'm such a big star in high school and college and I move into New York City and nobody seems to care. <laughs> And now instead of competing with three other guys, 
I'm competing with 40,000 people for a, a part. I never got an agent. I never got an audition that meant anything. I never, I just was, I was a wreck. And I just had all these odd jobs. What was this when you were working at the deli? Were you working at the deli during this? At the deli, I was a uh, guard at the Metropolitan Museum of Art. Wow. Yeah. Okay. So so this, this is relevant. I'm a guard at the Metropolitan Museum of Art. I worked there for about a year and about six months in, I, I got cast in something, some after college show. And uh, now I work from uh, midnight to eight in the morning. To try this uh, so that I can get to rehearsal and do the performances. And you can, there's guards at the Met, midnight to eight in the morning, and you do a little route through the, the section of the museum. And then you come back to your post after an hour, and then your partner goes and he does the route. So we go back and forth, back and forth. So I'm on my third night of no sleep because I, the, the show I was in got into dress rehearsals and performances and it was all day, all night, then midnight to eight in the morning. So oh. I thought because I was 21 years old that I could do this. And <laughs> at five in the morning, one day, I was awoken by the <laughs> manager of the security guard. She was standing over me <laughs> I had fallen asleep in a 300-year-old bed. <laughs> so you are night at the museum. You are night at the museum. Before that, yeah. it was me at the museum. Oh, my God. And I'm, I'm where it is. It's on the third floor of the American wing. It's called the Heart Room. It's a little period room of what the Old West would have looked like. There was a, right. there was a little bed, little, little bassinet, yeah. little thing. <laughs> And so, and I just, I finished my route early and I just saw it and I got, I remember walking over to it and the next thing I knew, a lady was standing over me, shaking me and I was like, ah, how, how did she get in my room? <laughs> and I was fired and I was humiliated. It was oh. so humiliating to be fired because I actually loved working at the museum. I could go to galleries and turn on all the lights and really learn about the art. You know, wow. you go to a museum and it's packed with people. You don't have time to read everything. Right. I had time to read everything. <laughs> but then I fell asleep on the art. They 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 frowned on that. And so I and so I was fired. Okay. So then I manage a deli and I do other jobs and I do other things. Years later, uh, some friends of mine and I write a show for ourselves to be in. That we finally got the idea that nobody's gonna cast you. Maybe you write something for yourself. It's called writing your own ticket, literally. And it's what I tell my kids and it's what I tell everybody who ever asks me about show business. They're not waiting for you. You have to make your own way. So that's life. Thus Game Changers with Vicki Abelson. You got it. So yeah. I, I write a thing with my friends. It becomes successful. An agent set, sees me in this thing and says, come to Hollywood. You will never stop working as an actor. So I packed a bag and I moved out here and I never started working as an actor. <laughs> Wait a minute. Didn't you do Tony and Tina's wet? Am I making this up? That's exactly the thing. That's it. Not, but it's huge. Yes. And I don't see a dime from it. Okay. How is that possible? And so did some of my other friends. We got completely screwed. And uh, Vicky, I don't know how much time you have, but I'd like to spend the rest of our time here complaining about that. No, but no, but I really want to. How is it possible that you write and create and and yes. and, and and co co create co, co write co create with friends? And some of those friends 
were not so nice. And oh, uh, I see. So they, some of the they, friends are benefited. They took they took credit and they wanted credit and they wanted money and they got rid of anyone that they could to so they wouldn't have to share this. And I bet and you they don't have a movie theater in their house that was made by the guys who did Abbey Road. And I bet Peter O'Toole doesn't come to their house. If if he went to their house, uh, you know, he they probably probably try to screw him out of something. <laughs> Well, but, but it was it was it was the worst thing that ever happened to me was getting screwed out of that thing that I helped create literally fired from the show wow. I helped create after a year of doing it right before we came to Hollywood. And that wasn't nice. And Tony and Tina's wedding is like probably still being performed as far as somewhere. OK, well, you made so, good. So so you have sour grapes and what happens but when here's you why I tell that story because yeah. it was the worst thing at the time it was the worst thing that ever happened to me and of course it was the best thing that ever happened to me right because it kicked me in the ass mm -hmm. and I didn't know what to do and so in uh, necessity is the mother of invention right so right. I, a friend of mine another friend of mine at the same time that I wrote the uh, the play with them uh, my friend Alan Kirschenbaum uh, who I knew from high school wow. was already a comedy writer. Said, "You want to write a screenplay?" And we wrote a screenplay together for fun, and we sold it to HBO for seventy thousand dollars in nineteen eighty-eight. Wow! It was more money. I, when I called my parents to tell them this, <laughs> my mother said, "How much?" And I told her that we're going to split seventy thousand dollars, and she was silent. She didn't even. She didn't. Even, wasn't even happy. She just said, do you know we've worked our whole lives to have that oh. in the bank? It was like, you little shit, you do nothing. And get this. And I kind of, I kind of understood. Yeah. Where so what, what, happened to that, what happened to that movie? What movie was that? That was a movie called Shulman. It was about a suburban detective. We wrote it for Alan Arkin. We were so excited. And Alan Arkin, uh, we, we tried to get it to him. I don't know, it didn't even get that far because HBO said, uh, do you have somebody in mind for this movie? We said, yes, Alan Arkin. And they said, Alan Arkin doesn't open a movie. The end. What? Yes. Wow. Adam might Adam Arkin might very well be watching this because Adam tunes in pretty much every day. So he could well, very I got to meet him. I love Adam Arkin. I love Alan Arkin's one of my all-time favorite actors. And we loved him. We loved the kind of dry, deadpan quality. Him and the in-laws is one of the funniest things you'll ever see. If you if you need a funny movie to watch during quarantine, I recommend the in-laws, the original. Where was I? Oh, I was getting to something. Yeah. So then, so Alan, we write the screenplay. We get that money very nice. Now I, I go from eating tuna fish for dinner to eating whatever I want because I have $35,000. <laughs> and and um, I'm a thousandaire. <laughs> and you're already with Monica, right? You're already with Monica. Was I with Monica? Yes. Yeah, because you met her in college. Yeah? No, right after I met her in 1986. And this okay. was a few years after that. By the way, she I went to Hollywood to try to make it my my wife to be was we weren't engaged or anything. We were just living together. She stayed in New York because we couldn't afford to come oh. out together. So I said, let me try it, you know, like well, like a gold you know, one of the gold rush guys. So let's see. <laughs> And then I'll send for you my, my bride. I'll send for the bride. So I go. And now uh, another friend of mine, Oliver Goldstick, whose plays I had done at Columbia Grad School, 
he's already trying to break into the uh, sitcom business as a, he was a player. Right. So he says, you want to write with me? I couldn't write again with Alan because Alan already was established as a single writer. He was already had a job. So uh -huh. I go with Oliver. We're going to write a spec script, meaning on speculation for no money, a sample right. script. What will we write about? Well, and have you studied screenwriting in school? Did you know what I you were doing? Playwriting and uh, playwriting and play analysis and directing. And, you know, I joked that I went for acting and they, the college made me take all these courses I knew I would never use, like English. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, but I didn't know it, but this education I got in Hofstra was wonderful. And it served me very well in, in later years because I could then approach every problem, let's say on a sitcom stage, from not only a writing perspective, but from a, uh, an acting perspective and a directing perspective. Uh -huh. So it would save time later on. If I can fix a scene by saying, hey, why don't you stand over there uh, next to her and deliver the line next to her, we don't have to rewrite everything. It's a simple why? fix, right? So that that's the benefit of getting a very well-rounded education in, if you're, I tell actors, if you're an actor, take a writing class. If you're a writer, take a directing class. They're all branches off the same tree, and you want to make this tree as strong as possible. Anyway, right. I get together with Oliver. Let's write a spec script. We need a spec script, a sample of our work. What should we write? Let's write a sample, uh, Roseanne. Roseanne is the big show in 1989 when we arrived in Hollywood. Let's write a Roseanne. What, should, what will the story be? Uh, I say, what if, the, what if uh, John Goodman's character... What if he needs a second job and he takes a second job as a guard at the local museum and falls asleep on a 300-year-old bed and we ride it and then we send it around town and people who read it, they go, what an imagination. That's great. You get hired from that script. So and that's sort of the basis of everything you do, though, is that you take from your life, right? Everything well, is that's all, that's all we have. You know, I can't write Star Trek. I don't have that kind of imagination. If you if you do, God bless you. But if you don't, what I tell young writers is you already have it in you. All we have, right, is as writers or artists of any kind are the lives that we've lived or are living filtered through the way we think. Mm -hmm. And you have that. And not only do you have that, but that's what makes you unique and different from the person next to you on this side and the person next to you on that side. So we all have this. If you look at the, the best shows you ever saw, let's take Better Things, for example. Okay. That's Pam Adlon's real life that she's channeled into right. a work of art. Right. Right? So that's that. I learned that that's everything. That that's everything. And, and the only thing I have are these real life stories because, again, I don't really have that great an imagination. <laughs> I, so, and I tell people who are starting, keep a diary, keep a journal, because it's easier to write things down than to write. <laughs> to create an idea. Yes. <laughs> write it down. And you think this is shit. Nobody cares about this. This is nothing. Guess what? In two weeks, three weeks, four weeks, a year, you go back and look at this. Hey, that's funny. Hey, that's funny. Maybe there's something there I can use. That's it. I I'm, didn't think being fired from the Metropolitan Museum <laughs> would lead to anything other than humiliation. And it turned <laughs> out to be the basis of everything. And that's what the Ray, the Raymond Room was all about, right? It was the, the writers, you guys sitting around. And what did you used to tell your writers? 
uh, uh, go home, get in a fight with your wife, come back, <laughs> tell me about it. Then we'll have a show. But I, I learned that from Carl uh, Reiner. The way he made the Dick Van Dyke show was what happened at your house this weekend. That was it. And we had very good hours on Raymond because I wanted you to go home. We went home for dinner every night. Wow. So shows I, I ever worked on or ever heard of even where the writers went home for dinner. Wow. And it wasn't just because we were well organized and we knew what the show was and what we wanted, but that's where the stories are coming from. <laughs> from dinner at home. So, okay, so so wait, so there, so you wrote that first spec script and you about the night in the museum. How did that translate to you becoming a showrunner and having your own deal? Well, I worked for five years on shows you never heard of first. Okay. Uh, one show you did hear of. Oh, Coach. You the, worked on the, Coach, the, right? I worked on Coach for three years uh -huh. in the middle of the Coach run. Right. Uh, Oliver and I worked two of those years together, and then we split up amicably because it, it turns out uh, that, you know, they pay two writers as one. Right. So this is something else I... I say to young writers, team up because they like the idea of getting two for one. They like that. So you have a better chance of getting hired, right? Wow. If you, if you have a partner. Now, after two years of us doing that, or have, no, it's probably four years of us doing that, we got tired of being two for one. Right. We, so we, how, how we, because you... we don't collaborate on everything we pitch in the room. We don't right. get together and go, blah, 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 blah. we say blue. No. We, we were individuals and now we have enough confidence that we think we can do this on our own and we could. So the last year of coach, not only did I write uh, on it on my own, but they let me direct one. Oh, wow. Okay. It was during that last year of coach that I got a tape of a comedian who worked for 12 years trying to get on David Letterman and his name was Raymond and that's that. So, and they let you be the show run, the, because how do you get that first showrunner gig? How how did they have the confidence in you to do that? Uh, I'll tell you the very short version, but the, okay. the, 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 the full version of my story and how to run one of these shows and how to make one of these shows is in my book that you know. I do uh, know. You're lucky you're funny how life becomes a sitcom. And I recommend people get the download because it's like having me in the car I, I read that book going on a cross country from LA to New York and I was laughing so loud that the woman next to me asked me to be quiet. Wow. <laughs> yeah, she did. I was annoying her because I was laughing so much. It's wonderful. So, it's nice if you want to annoy people. It's it's a wonderful um, book. Anyway. Uh, so the short version I of, had a lot of Why did they give that to you? The thing was very, I was writing a very personal thing. Yes, it's based on Ray's actual life, his actual mm -hmm. physical life, the kids, mm -hmm. the, the parents who lived close by, the brother even who was a police sergeant who right. lived with the parents. It was all the, the physical layout was his life. Mm -hmm. But I didn't write the pilot with Raymond. I wrote it alone. And what I didn't oh. know about his family, the traits mm -hmm. of the family, mm -hmm. I took from my family, put personal stories, things that really happened like the fruit of the month club thing that's in the pilot that really happened. For those of you who don't know, I gave my parents fruit of the month and they acted like I gave them a box of heads from a murderer. <laughs> my mother actually said, I can't talk anymore. There's too much fruit. <laughs> so, oh my God. 
And I put that in the pilot. And the pilot was, uh, we all, I think, know by now, it was cast very well. The cast was genius and brilliant and wonderful. And the show got picked up. It wasn't their favorite show. It didn't have stars, big stars in it. They had, they had uh, shows with big stars. And we barely got on the schedule. But we did get on. And they wanted a showrunner mm-hmm. because I had never run a show before. Oh. And I told okay. them, uh-huh. well, I'm not going to work for somebody else on my own show. I felt very strongly about it, that I knew this material. I knew this world. It was my life. Mm-hmm. And it was very personal to me. Now, I couldn't run every show, but mm-hmm. I knew I could run and should run that show. Mm-hmm. And so I was going to quit. And my agent said, they don't care if you quit. They're going to do the show without you. And I said, go ahead. And I, I hung up and he called back the next day. Good news. They're going to let you co-run the show with an experienced showrunner. And they'll feel better. And that way you can say that you're co-running the show. Oh, I said, oh, if you put it that way, I quit because I knew what would happen. Mm-hmm. That co-showrunner was gonna be the boss because mm-hmm. he ran a show before. And mm-hmm. I would be working for someone else of my own, on my own show and all decisions creatively would be made by him. And I would have some say, but I wouldn't have the say. Mm-hmm. And I needed to have the say because mm-hmm. I knew how it should be. Mm-hmm. Only this show, no other show. I would never have pulled this with anything else. Mm-hmm. And he said, all right, you're being an idiot. And this is it. You take it or leave it. I said, I'm leaving. Goodbye. And I hung up. And three days went by of me living in the world thinking they're doing my show without me. Wow. And I, what am I going to do? Well, I mean, I need a job. First of all, I need another job. Mm-hmm. I was very depressed. And on the third day, they called. And they said, they're going to let you run the show. You've and done this because I quit. I, well, you've 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 exerted your when you know you're right. You have a lot of balls, Phil. I mean, I, I seem to I recall. It feel like balls to me. It feels like I don't. I can't do it any other way. When I make a decision like that, mm-hmm. and I quit once before on the show, which probably helped me get the show. I left that part out of this story, but in casting, they wanted a. Mm-hmm. Uh, 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 a different actress for the I, wife, and I, I was quitting. I was like, no, 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 this is, we didn't, we hadn't found Patty Heaton yet, but this, I knew this person was not right, and I was going to quit again. And then I convinced the head of the network to let us keep looking for someone else. That And, and I think that impressed him, even though I was told that if I even questioned it, I would not have a show. And so I was going, I was quitting. And I think, you know, sometimes when you stand up to the King, if you do it with deference and you do it, not like an asshole and you're, you're, and you have facts to back you up. Right. And reasoning, you know, if they're not Donald Trump, they may listen to you. You, you've done that in other, I, I seem to recall this a story from the deli where you stood up to, to a boss. To, didn't you stand up to your boss at the deli or something? I seem to recall that you've done this before in your life. This wasn't the first time you stood up for yourself. I don't remember. Yeah, I, think, I remember being more cowardly in other situations. But this, <laughs> I felt 
again, when I'm doing this, I'm mm-hmm. not brave and standing up like I'm, I'm anything. I'm shitting in my pants. I'm nervous wreck. I'm a nervous wreck. I don't like doing this. Who likes confrontation of any kind? Who likes that? So I didn't yeah. want to do this. I didn't want to, but I felt so strongly that this was going to fail unless I got my way. I oh, really okay. felt- All right. So this happens again in Russia, as I recall. Okay. Yeah. So now you take Raymond and you make exporting Raymond and you do, you go to Russia and you're turning it into a sitcom in Russia. And now you're running into walls all over the place in Russia. And I believe you stood up there too. Yeah. The stakes were lower because I was in Russia. <laughs> they invited me. They right. invited me to come to help them turn my show into everybody loves Kostya. <laughs> and I loved that idea. And I said, I will do it. This was, uh, the year 2010. Mm-hmm. Uh, was that it? Yeah. And I said, I'll come if, if you let me document the whole thing. Because I thought it'd be interesting. Right. And what I didn't realize was how funny it was. And it's funny because here's someone who thinks they're an expert in something who goes to a land where nobody cares. <laughs> I remember you had some wonderful conversations with the costume uh, designer. Yeah. And uh, yeah, lots of uh... costume designer was she wanted to be the showrunner. <laughs> God. So so Phil, so so let's fast forward because I know we have to get to talk about food in the pandemic and all of that stuff. But before we get to all of that, I want to talk about how you got this dream come true. Um, uh, okay, so during Raymond, very yeah. quickly. Uh, end of season one, I say to Ray, where are you going on your hiatus? He goes, oh, I go to the Jersey Shore. I said, that's nice. You ever been to Europe? He goes, no. I said, why not? He goes, I'm not really interested in other culture. (laughs) Even his own culture, even Italian. He's not interested. (laughs) And a light bulb went off. I thought, oh, we got to do an episode where we send you over there with that attitude and you change there and come back with my attitude. Wow. Of getting woke by the idea of travel and seeing how great it is and how it's the most mind-expanding thing in life and how wonderful it is and okay, how well, it changes your perspective. Stop yeah. a second, because you have to tell people that even when you didn't have any money, you were traveling like a lunatic, right? You were always traveling, right? I didn't travel until I was 23 years old. I didn't okay. go anywhere. We didn't have any money at all. And right. when I was 23, that was before the writing thing. I was, you know, pretty much a temp worker, but I got a job for a DHL courier Mm-hmm. which didn't have their own planes then. They you they sent all their mail overseas as uh, one coach passenger's excess baggage. And all you had to do was take all the luggage tags and drop them off at a at the, whatever city you were going to. In my case, it was Zurich. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there would be a guy holding a DHL sign and you give him the luggage tags and your, your flight is free both ways. You do the same thing coming back and you have two weeks. That's yours, your time. And I stayed in hostels and pensiones and changed my life because it was, even with no money, the greatest thing that ever happened to me. What was the, what, what makes travel the greatest thing that's ever happened? Why is it great, Phil? I have to tell you. you no, I mean, I know. Because have you been, I, to, Par- have you know, been to Paris, France? Have you been to Florence? No, no, but I mean, your answer, I know, is, also, is always about the people, right? It's always about the people that you... I went to Paris. I, my mind was blown. The food, the sights, 
the 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 atmosphere the the people super friendly you know this is this is 1983 mm -hmm. took an overnight train from there third class compartment where three sets of bunk beds are on each side of the compartment mm -hmm. so my friend and i are in two of the bunk beds and across the way is this couple who are my age mm -hmm. a girl and a boy who are traveling for fun from Florence and now they're going back to Florence. She speaks a little English. He speaks none. Mm -hmm. They're friendly. I go to the bar car and I buy a bottle of cheap wine and we stay up all night talking. They write in my journal where I should go when I'm in Florence. They draw a picture. What's Ooh. the picture? The Duomo. You maybe you should see that. Yeah, like you're gonna miss it. <laughs> and and and, uh, and their bakery where they work with the family. And so of course I'm going and I go and I go to the bakery and I meet the father. This is 1983, okay? When people like Americans, in fact, he looks at me, he goes, American, John Wayne. <laughs> he sits me down and gives me every single thing they make in the bakery to eat. And then when people, yeah, you can't even imagine that this wouldn't happen anymore. The people on the street, because there's an American boy, the lady who makes pasta next door comes out with a hot plate of pasta with sauce for me. <laughs> the meat guy make, makes, a, makes a steak for me. I'm sitting at a tiny table in an alley, and it's wow. like the king has arrived. Wow. I couldn't believe how phenomenal it was. And wow. I fell in love with this couple, and we stayed in touch for many years. And if you saw that episode of I'll Have What Phil's Having when I go to Florence, I uh, reconnect with them and uh, stay connected. That is the best part of travel. Uh, and, and, you know, even though, even though it's the very best thing, there's on the list two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight other things about travel that make it worthwhile, even if you never made a friend. That, that episode is, it's, it's, uh, it's perfect. It's absolutely perfection. Every single thing about it is, I mean, all of them are fantastic, but that is a piece of perfection from the humor to the humanity, to the food, to the location, everything about it is a work of art. It, it just really is. But so getting back, getting back to Raymond, right? So that, that's my experience, right? That, okay. That's how I feel about travel. Now it takes about three or four years to number one, convince CBS that we should go do this episode in Italy, a one right. hour special episode. And it takes that long to convince Ray Romano to get on a goddamn plane because he's afraid. Really? He'd never been overseas. Oh, okay. okay. Again, and tr true, he wasn't interested. So I write this script where he gets woke and we film it. We get him over there and we film it. And the best part is that what happens to the character, that arc of the character, I see happen to my friend. Aww. Aww. He gets it. He falls in love with it. Every night we're having pizza. Phil, have you tried this one? <laughs> yes, I have that one. Oh, let's, should we, there's another one down. Should we taste them all? Sure. How about, oh, gelato. Oh, you got to have the lemon with the, with the coconut. Oh, my God. Okay. <laughs> When I saw that happen, when I saw his life change, mm -hmm. a 40 year old man at this time, mm -hmm. his life change, I thought, and I never forgot, 
what a gift to me mm. to be able to see that change in a friend. So I wanted to do that for everybody. I actually think the world would be better if we all could experience a little bit of other people's experiences, right? So that's my favorite, favorite thing. So now what you see is the culmination of my stupid existence <laughs> on the earth, because we already talked about my background and where I'm from and what happened. But now I've taken the knowledge that I have about how to make a show. Right. Story, character, you know, pace, technical shit that we don't care about, but it's important. Right. And it's all in the service of everything else I love in life. Mm -hmm. Family, friends, food, travel, laughs. That's what that show is to me. Was it was it an easy sell for you? No, it took 10 years. <laughs> okay, this is what I, I, you know, because everybody looks at you and you just look like, like you got it all going on and you got all this success and you have all I this. I don't. When I'm not talking to you, I'm pulling my hair out because I have this anxiety about life. And, and it's not, it's only when I'm doing the thing I love doing, which is this scam that I've somehow managed to get myself into. Right. Uh, I'm, I'm a nervous wreck that, that how do I get it? How do I get it? It's like a junkie. How do I get it? Gotta get it. I remember when, when you came to do women who write, it was in 2011, I believe And Monica, I remember she pulled me up and she said, I said, wow, you know, you guys, you just have everything filled, whatever he wants. Just no, he's making me crazy. He, he, you were like writing a bunch of shots, like things weren't clicking for a, a little bit there. before. So when Raymond was over and that was, that was nice and went very, very well, better than anyone could have dreamed. But when we graduated from that experience, we were in a world again where nobody cares, <laughs> where I, I, I swear to God, the business changed. In other words, this was a nice family show. Mm -hmm. It had a little, little edge to it. It was aimed at adults, but it was never, ever, uh, uh, what's the word risque in, in, mm. in a way that crossed the line. In other right. words, you could watch it with your kids, right? And whatever risque jokes we had went over the kid's head and you could sit there with your parents and their parents, even and it would be offensive. Mm -hmm. And what I found afterwards were that show not really valued. They want the hip, edgy, sexy, young wow. shows. Mm -hmm. And so it's not for lack of trying that I didn't do a sit another sitcom. I tried. I wrote several pilots again that mm -hmm. they did not want. And the shows they wanted me to run or take over, I didn't want. I didn't want that because it's not my wheelhouse. I didn't know how to, I, it's not that I was snobby and said, I can't do a sex joke. It's right. just not, I'm not good at it. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm sure my wife can tell you more about that, but the, <laughs> the, the, uh, and so I was knocking my head against the wall to the point where I said, you know, if I'm going to knock my head against the wall, I may as well pick a wall. I really, really want. And so that thing about Italy, the Italy show with Raymond that never left. And so I started making little videos of the places I went and even just locally mm -hmm. and, and talk about, and I realized to get the way to get people to travel two, two ways. And it's in the show now, mm -hmm. food and mm -hmm. maybe laughs. Mm -hmm. That's it. So how, how did you, how did you go about selling it? Cause I know it wasn't an overnight sell. I went to every network. 
I'll have what Phil's having with you. By the way, when you tell your agents mm -hmm. that you want to do a food and travel show, <laughs> it's, it's as if you, you came into their office and pooped on their desk. <laughs> if you come from where I come from. <laughs> you have to write another sitcom so we can make some money. Yeah, but I want to do this. I'm tired of trying that. You know, I want to, I, I, it's not like I'll never write another sitcom that might go, but I want to do this because I think I can put the elements of a sitcom in this. Which you have. So, so, okay. So how, how did you get turned down? Did you, you got turned down? By everyone. Down? By everyone. And then PBS, which was actually the first place I wanted to go. Oh. That's the first place I thought of. And so I, so, you know, I, I, that, that was the last place they would let me go because they, that there's not enough money there at all. They wanted at least to try to get a little money from the networks that have money. But then I did it. And then after six episodes, I think we were their top show that year. And we won the James Beard Award for best. So travel. So that was like, that, that was like me entering a rodeo and winning the rodeo prize. It doesn't get better. Than, it doesn't get better than that in the food world. That's for sure. Amazing. It was amazing. And then the show wasn't picked up because they couldn't afford it. But then here comes Netflix, and then they pick it up, and we have. Okay, but wait, you, you had a period in between. You didn't go. Did you go I right? Two years in between. I was going to say so because I had to legally. Like get, I had to legally be able to do the show that I, I had to legally be able to do a food and travel show of any kind for someone else. They were going to hold me to that legality. It was crazy, but we changed name and we, you know, paid them off. Whatever it was. And all I cared about was uh, the opportunity to keep doing it. And Netflix was wonderful. You know, it's funny because when I remember when the, when you had I'll have what Phil's having and you said you had to change the name. I was like, oh, no. that was like the perfect name. Except now somebody it, feed Phil seems like the perfect name. Right. It just I don't think titles matter that much. Mm -hmm. You know, there there have been times when the title really gets in the way. Like I remember a movie called, and I, and I remember when it came out, I go, oh, that that's not going to do well. Why? What's the name of it? Dying Young. <laughs> that might be the worst title. Yeah, that doesn't sound good. All right, so let's talk. Some, let's talk food. We got to talk food before you go, because I know I know you have dinner coming. So first, I have the COVID crazies on here. I just want to talk a little bit about how you're handling the pandemic and what you're doing about food. Here you are. You're someone who loves to travel. You go out to lunch every day of your life. How is this translating to this new, I don't want to say normal, but this new existence we have here? Uh, you can travel by ordering the best takeout and delivery in the world right now, especially if you live in L.A., the everyone, because of the terrible circumstance we're in and the, and the, the, the desire to stay alive, mm -hmm. is focusing on what used to be a side business. It's now the business. Mm -hmm. They don't even know if maybe the other business is coming back. So right. the best restaurants in the city, and, and I'm not talking about just the, the expensive place. I'm talking about down to the pizzerias. They have upped the game. I don't know if you've ordered out lately, but... I mean, we've had some of the best meals we've ever had. Out of okay, so I want to talk about that for LA people. Tell us some of the stuff that you're ordering in that's blowing your mind. Uh, tonight I'm getting Wovo, which is a wonderful uh, mini chain of pasta specialty uh, places. It's, it's really a pasta bar if you go in the restaurant. Mm -hmm. Pasta is made in Bologna. Oh my God, I'm writing this it down. Rests, it rests on the trip to LA. 
And well, then they, spell it, Wovo. How do you spell it? Babs. Wovo means egg in uh, Italian. U-O-V-O. Wovo. Okay, I like it. Yeah. Okay, where else? Uh, I have a list. I have a list. I've been to some of the big ones. I've been to Bavel and Bestia, meaning gotten gotten takeout from them. Uh-huh. And that they're geniuses because they've they've made it as good as the restaurant. I'm serious. Wow. The food is as good as what you get in the restaurant. Wow. Yes. And they give you little reheat instructions that are perfect. Wow. And so if you follow them, even a monkey like me can make this. You put it in, you take it out. You put it on a nice plate and you have a four-star dining experience. It's That's really been what about cheap eats that you're any cheap eats that you're loving take out yeah, from high high ho burgers travel very well. They do, do a brilliant thing with the French fries where if they come in a perforated bag so that the, the fries always arrive soggy and terrible. But the perforated bag keeps them crispy because the steam is allowed to escape and they don't steam in the bag on the way over. Smart. Wow. And so, and are you cooking, Phil? Have you stepped up your game? Are you? Uh... We barbecue. We barbecue a little bit. Uh, we we uh, uh, you know I'll make myself eggs or a sandwich, but I'm not a cook. Yeah. You know, people say, "What do you mean? You have a food and travel show? You can't cook?" I say, "Yeah, I meet a lot of great chefs around the world. They can't write a sitcom. <laughs> we all contribute in our way, and they like me because I really appreciate." Yes, you do. All right, so let's talk about season three of uh, Somebody Feed Phil. So let's talk about. So you go, you you go to Montreal. Wait, did you get to film all the shows you had contracted for? Yeah. So we you. Were- In fact, we did two seasons, ten ten episodes, five and five, and we got them all filmed by the second week of January, and so wow. just under the wire. Yeah. Wow. And it okay. was scheduled that way, just by luck. And wow. Of course, the editing and the voiceover and all that we could all do remotely. Wow. Oh, did you do, did you do a lot of stuff after lockdown? Did you still have stuff to do? We always do because there's narration in the show. So right. there's voiceover, right? There's editing to do, there's color correction and, and, and uh, sound mixing. You can do it all without being in that room. But you're, if you're doing it in your house, you have somebody coming in and doing it with you. You're not just. No, it's like this. It's wow. a better version of this, but <laughs> you know, the, the, like they'll do a cut of the show an edit mm-hmm. of the show and then send it to me and then I'll watch it on my uh, screen mm-hmm. and then I'll make notes. And then there's even a technology where we can watch the, the screen that they're editing on together. Wow. And we do that for the final pass and we, we make tiny adjustments. Okay. So I know uh, the countries that the cities that you're going to. So Mon- let's talk about Montreal for a second. Cause I've been told that they have the best bagels. I find this hard to believe. Wh- how do you feel about the bagels in Montreal? They're now my favorite bagels. Stop. More than a new. You can order them. You can order them. It's from uh, Saint Viator. So they, they're, they're uh, the water that they boil them in first is is uh, uh, there's a little honey in the water, just a little, and and then they're baked in a wood oven. And I'm telling you, and maybe it's because I got to have them right out of the wood oven, Ooh. so they were crispy on the outside and really soft and tender, Ooh. like a donut on the inside. They were, they were, they were. It's a different thing. It's like, yeah. it's like. Airing, New York pizza, Chicago pizza. So this bagel, it's got more uh, a kind of more rustic feel to it, and it's got a little bit of that kissed by the wood fire thing going for it. But you don't put lots and cream cheese on one of those. 
You do? Yeah. You do. Yeah. Wow. Oh, yeah. You put everything, put whatever you want on it. What What else in Montreal blew your mind? Uh, there's a fine dining place called Montreal Plaza. That's unbelievable. That's not a good title for a restaurant, but, <laughs> but it's, it's, it's because it sounds like a mall, but it's, you know, cutting edge, really phenomenal place. There's this, this, uh, is there good Chinese food there? Yes. But there, I had Haitian food. I had the, of course, poutine. I had the, that was one of the best things I ever ate was this beautiful, like, uh, Portuguese chicken place that they put on the poutine, you know, over the best French fries with the gravy and the cheese curds and the Portuguese sausage mixed in. Oh my God. Um, all right. So, so an I, hour flight from New York, Montreal, an hour flight. And you feel like you went to like Europe. Wow. Right? Never it's a very that. underrated place. And the food scene has exploded there. It's wonderful. How about, okay. So Chicago, Chicago pizza versus New York. Great. Great. What did you, lo what did you love in Chicago? I don't have to pick a favorite. That's a completely different thing. No, no, no. I mean, did, yeah, but what did you what did you love in Chicago aside from pizza? Uh, aside from pizza, there's an Italian restaurant there from a woman named Sarah Grunenberg, and she's a James Beard winner. And she has an Italian restaurant called Monteverde, and the food there she makes all the pasta in house. She has Italian grandmothers behind the bar, so you sit at the bar and you can watch it like a show. Them making the pasta handmade, and then. Here it is for you. Wow, that place is great. Chicago is one of the most beautiful cities in the world. It's the most magnificent city, maybe in America for sure, because wow. of the architecture. Mm -hmm. You know that boat ride they do a, uh, through the river? Mm -hmm. There's an architectural boat tour that I didn't even know until I got there that it was, it's one of the top tourist attractions in the United States. For very good reason. It's yeah. it's absolutely magnificent city. Don't go in the winter. I've but, been. Yeah, it hurts. It, it, my eyes real, literally yeah. froze. My eyeballs yeah. froze there. Yeah, yeah it's yeah. crazy. But what a place. What a great place. I love it. And Seoul. How was Seoul for you? Amazing. You know, I live right next to Koreatown here, so I thought I knew a little bit about the culture. But, of course, this is a town, and that's a giant, giant, massive city. And it's a world city. You know, it's one of the centers of Asia is is Seoul. And so every cuisine is there and all this innovation. And it's kind of like the New York of Asia. It's incredible. Yeah. Did you eat food there that you've never had before? Yes. I was, and now I come back and I'm like, hey, I had tukbuki. I got to look for tukbuki here in Koreatown. And sure enough, they have it. So that's wow. another reason to travel. You find stuff that you love. And then because we have such diversity here in America, there's probably someone making that from where they come from. Wow. Okay. And, and Marrakesh, eating with your hands? Were you eating with your hands? I did a lot of eating with my hands. I ate also with a fork once in a while, but it was <laughs> phenomenal. I rode a camel, which I don't advise. I wasn't crazy about this form of transportation. The camel, camel is you know, not. The, the handlers have to make the camel bend down so you can get on it. So they right. have to kneel down. They don't like this. They're, so you come over the camel, the camel's like, rah, 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 like just yelling. I was like, I'm not getting on that. He doesn't want me. He obviously doesn't want me. Would you get in an Uber if the man was screaming? <laughs> oh my, but you did, you had to, so you did it. Yeah. It's, it's not comfortable. It's like, it's, it's like punching your undercarriage. The entire, 
uh, maybe I had a bony camel. I don't know. <laughs> I don't like it. I don't like it. But the food oh. and the people and the beauty of America, it's so romantic. It's so exotic. It's so evocative of like the movies like Casablanca. You have to go. It's great. Okay, and so and you went to London. Okay, so the always yes. here, the food in London, not good. Yes, that's that that people have been saying that, but that's 30 years ago. It wasn't good. Now it's a great food city, one of the best in the world. Okay, what's great about what's great about London food? The same thing that's great about every major city on the earth now, and this is you could argue the city of the world is London. I mean that there's a case to be made because mm -hmm. of their location, their 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 financial center, their cultural center, right? Mm -hmm. So it's just a spectacular, uh, diverse population, and and you know like amazing Indian food, amazing uh, even their homegrown. They they're doing you know for for thirty years ago they were still in like a post World War Two mentality where all the vegetables came out of the can, right? And, now it's farm to table like everybody else because the internet, the internet shows everybody what can be. So a chef anywhere can emulate another chef anywhere else and then combine with their local ingredients. As long as you have the values of caring about fresh, right? And organic right. and nice and flavorful, anything's possible. And I love the mashups that are all over the world. The influences when they do this, you know, it's just like people. The more we mash up together, the more interesting it is. So are there places that you want to go that you have? Yes. 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 And I did, I've done a total now. I filmed 28 episodes of this thing. And so I barely scratched the surface of the earth. I thought I was starting with earth's greatest hits, right? I haven't even hit them all. I haven't been to India yet. I haven't been to Australia or New Zealand yet on the show. I haven't been to, there's a lot. So I hope, first of all, we want the world to return to us, which I believe it's going to happen. I believe that, you know, if you watch the show, it shouldn't be with the idea that, oh, uh, I missed what it used to be, but with the eye towards, wait, it's going to come back. There'll be a vaccine. There'll be things. Of, and the reason I'm confident in this is because it's happened every other time. Right. right? We've come back. So how are you come back again? So watch the show and plan your vacation. Okay, so Friday, this Friday, on Netflix, season three, all these cities that we just mentioned. So Phil, before we go, what are you doing with your days in pandemic? How, how are the Rosenthal's living their life right now? I did a very smart thing. I, I, the day we went into lockdown, we adopted a puppy. We rescued a puppy. Murray! We got him at 10 weeks. Murray, he's a superstar. <laughs> uh, people say he should have his own Instagram. I'm like, wait a minute. I've gained many followers because of him. I'm not giving him up. I'm, I'm his pimp. I'm his pimp now. Go do something cute. I'm putting you on the Instagram. Your trainer is another one who like, I yeah, your Instagram with your trainer is hysterical. Ben Bruno. Ben Bruno training. Yes. So, all right. So you're- This you're, doesn't just happen by itself. You, you, so, you, so you have Murray. You have your family, but what does a day look like for you? What are you, what are you doing, Phil? I, I, I walk the dog every day, sometimes three times a day for just for fun and great. You know, he has to go anyway. We both need exercise. Mm -hmm. I work out a little bit. I plan a lunch. I do one of these. I do, I, I uh, try to write something. I try to do uh, uh, some publicity for the show coming because we work for years on this thing and I don't want it to just disappear. So mm -hmm. that's important to me. And, and uh, 
I do even do little political videos once in a while. And, and uh, I don't, to me, they aren't even political. They're just, I'm just trying to be human. All right. Well, you guys are very political. You've done a, you've, you guys did a lot for Obama. You've, you've done a lot of, I'm, I'm sure. I didn't you... think my show was political, but it turns out in today's climate, the embracing of other people and other cultures is like a political statement. And people say, oh, you must be this party. You must be from that part. No, I'm just trying to be a person. So are you are you writing? Is there something is there something else? I mean, I know you want to do a lot more of these and there's a lot yes. more traveling you want to do. Is there something else that you haven't done that you'd still love to do? I'd love I welcome another show, another sitcom of some kind would be great. Uh, something maybe even with music, something with with uh, variety, anything drama. I, I love every aspect of show business. I love the acting. I love the performing. I love the editing. I love the writing. I love the director. Every aspect of show business except the business. The business. And you also wrote a great musical, uh, which uh, I happen to know about. And uh, But so is, is, is that something you'd still like to do? Have a musical on of the course. board? Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. Yeah, it has to be right, though. I have to, I, I, I learned what not to do. It's just as important as learning what to do, is learning what not to do. do you, have you watched Ozark yet, season three? Great, what a great show. Okay, because oh Felix Stoning's a friend of mine. He was the, Felix was the bad, the, the, the guy. And so he was watching and he said hi. What do you mean? He's the, he's the, he's the, he's the guy, he's the guy. The king. Tell him he's a genius, he's I love a, him. He's wonderful. Yeah, he's tell wonderful. him I love him. I think that show is phenomenal. As good as as good a season of television has ever been. Was I think the third season was absolutely genius. And uh, our friend Nicole is watching right now. And uh, yeah, I, so I can't uh, see who's watching. You have a list of who's watching. I, yeah, I can see who's watching. Yeah, so I was getting comments. I haven't I haven't answered any. A lot of people are saying how you know answering things to you and asking you questions, and I haven't been paying attention to it because I'm paying attention to you. But afterwards, I'll go back. And then if there's questions that you should answer, I'll, I'll get the answers from, from you for them. Okay. <laughs> I'll, I'm taking a quick, my friend Cindy Beagle wrote on all of Gary Marshall's sitcoms and she's loving this so much. All of oh, your- I loved Gary. I loved him so oh. much. What a great guy. Okay, so let's- I, told, I remember I ran into him at a party once. And he goes, what season are you going into? I said, we're going into season two. And he goes, I love the second season. <laughs> he said to Sin, he told the writers, page eight, you don't need it. Throw it out. <laughs> that, that was Gary's advice. So um, let's talk about Fred for a second. We did before we came on. the Fred year. Willard, a genius, underrated, great comic genius, uh, giant influence on many, many comic actors and comedians undeniably funny when I, I said that if you see him pop up in a movie suddenly you get excited that oh now it's going to be funny now it's funny if it was funny it's going to now get even funnier and if it wasn't funny you thank god for fred willard right and we had him in the show and every single line he had he could get a laugh every single so what was it like having him on set like was like the having a like was having the a, gold or did he make it gold? Is it both? The food is here. I have to go. Okay. 
So did Fred did Fred make gold from the script? Was it already gold? Did he make it golder? What, what, what how was that? He certainly made it golder if it wasn't gold. Yes. Yeah. Well, Phil, thank you so much for doing this. I'm so I love being with you. It's so nice to see you and this was such a nice time and you're very good at this. Thank, thank you. Send my love to all the Rosenthal's and I'll see Monica next Wednesday. You're my witness. Monica's coming on. Now you're going to get the real truth. It's all her. It's all her. She's going to tell you. Enjoy your dinner. Thank you. You too, everybody. Bye-bye. Thanks, Bye. Phil. Sure.